A poem to begin from Gabriel Mistral for a summer evening, or beginning of the fall. A woman is singing in the valley. The shadows falling blot her out, but her song spreads over the fields. Her heart is broken, like the jar she dropped this afternoon among the pebbles in the brook. Her deathless heart, alive, with tears gathers all the silent voices into her voice, sharp now yet very sweet. Does she sing for a husband who looks at her silently in the dusk, or for a child whom her song caresses? Or does she sing for her own heart more helpless than a babe at nightfall? Night grows maternal before this song that goes to meet it. The stars, with a sweetness that is human, are beginning to come out. The sky full of stars becomes human and understands the sorrows of this world. And her song, as pure as water, cleanses the plain and rinses the mean air of the day in which we have hated. And from the throat of the woman who sings and sings, day rises again, evaporating nobly, reaching toward the stars. I'm very happy to be back again at Spirit Rock. I was away for a bit at a men's retreat up in Mendocino with uh, Malidoma Somme, an African medicine man, and Michael Mead and several other teachers. Um, and the men's retreats of this kind, uh, which we've been doing for a number of years, also are oriented to bringing in young people and men, young men from the inner cities, some have been in different gangs, and um, men of color, different communities. It was um, kind of culminated after four or five days of working with various practices, breath practices, poetry, storytelling, uh, ritual, healing practices, in a, in a long evening ritual. And we started probably around, oh, just when this break was, around 8 o'clock at night, a little bit before. Um, to walk down this road, we were way deep in the redwood forests, five abreast, because the story that we'd been telling that day was about five brothers, uh, an old um, African story about five brothers who needed to help one another face this uh, giant. And um, there were some leaders of this kind of ritual who were drumming, and we were all singing, carrying banners, and walking through the redwood trees just as the dusk was coming, and the redwood trees became like a huge temple. Um, and we walked slowly for probably half an hour down the road, and all of a sudden as it got dark, as it has, has now, we came around a bend in the road for the place where our last major ritual would be held. Um, and the stream bed had been lit with about a thousand votive candles tucked under the roots of the redwood trees and on steps that had been carved down to the stream. And banners had been hung from the redwood trees. And there was a huge fire in the middle of clearing three fires, actually, 
for the young men who were going, turned out all the men did it, go and stand between the three fires um, until they felt c clear enough to make a decision um, to change their life in the ways that um, their deepest values, um, their, their, their heart, their, their deepest spirit um, would approve. And they weren't supposed to leave standing between those fires until they were clear what they were going to do. And we drummed for a while. This is a whole long ritual. Then they were plunged in the stream for a long time. This ritual went on for a good part of the night. Um, and part of it, of course, was that it was a very moving ritual after a week of people sharing their lives and their struggles and their loves. Um, part of it was just to awaken people's eyes to the sense of beauty. I mean, the forest itself is beautiful. Um, but to sweep clear an area under the redwoods and hang it with silk banners and uh, place candles and fire and, um, and so forth in such a way that when you walk into it at night, it seems like this time, timeless, ancient um, uh, temple of the trees. Um, the next morning, we took all that away. And if you walked there now, you wouldn't know that anything had ever happened there. We restored it exactly the way that it was. Um, but it's there in the minds and the hearts of the people who saw it. Um, and so it touched their imagination. There, is a, uh, there was a study that was done in London um, several years ago about beauty, um, in which a street in one of the neighborhoods where there was a considerable amount of violence and difficulty, um, a lot of poverty, a particular street for a six-block area was beautified. The street was cleaned and swept um, regularly. There was a crew that went in. The things that were spray-painted on buildings were taken off, and the, you know, the plants were watered. And everything that would make that street feel really more beautiful was done to it regularly by crews. And then a street three blocks over parallel to it with the same kinds of problems and sufferings and difficulties that we know plague our cities, um, nothing happened. Nothing was done to it. And after a year, they discovered that the amount of violence that happened on that street was reduced by 50% compared to the street three blocks away. Do you understand this? It's as if there is a kind of um, invitation to beauty. Um, and it's not just the outer beauty, but it's the outer beauty that reminds our being or our spirit of an inner beauty um, that can reawaken us and can bring a kind of harmony into our life and into the world. And in some sense, I see spiritual practice as an invitation to rediscover that place of beauty. Some of the young men in this retreat stood up and talked about how much despair they had, how many times they'd been betrayed, because we told a story that included a, 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 uh, an account of a betrayal in one of the stories. And, you know, some of the black or Latino guys said, I've just had one betrayal after another, and just began to pour out the kind of betrayal. Uh, that's what I expect from life is betrayal. And then some young guys from the suburbs, some young white guys, stood up and said, well, I didn't have that kind of betrayal. 
I would call my betrayal a kind of white fog in which I grew up and what was betrayed was who I really am or what I could be. Instead it was the advertisements and the shopping and all of those sorts of things. Um, and they were talking about the pain of that. Um, and all of a sudden a man stood up, I think Pakistani, um, who had been speaking during the week. And he said, he was now, he was nearly 50, that he had a great deal of despair in his life. And he was divorced and he was working. And when he was home, he just looked at his walls and no one was there. And as he went on, it was clear that he was contemplating suicide. He was very depressed. And as he spoke, and he was a very sweet fellow, all of a sudden, several of the youth stood up at once and they looked at him and they said, don't you do that. Don't you dare do that. Don't even talk about it. And everything in the room got a little electric. You know how those moments are. And one of the young men said, you know, in my community, a number of my friends have thought of killing themselves. And if you were to do it, what could I say to them? What could I say to myself? So you have to stay alive for me and for my friends. You have to do that. And another youth looked at him and said, if our elders can't do this, what are we to turn to? Then in another small group, there was a man there who, was, who kind of came, I'm not sure why he came, but he was pretty barricaded from life and so forth. And in the small, he was, a, uh, he was kind of a, when we talked about what people did, he was a landlord of some kind. I began to wonder, maybe he was a slumlord or something like that. But he got in this small group, and there were a number of men there, and there were a couple of black men in the group. And he turned to these guys, and he said, I don't like you. I said, I tell you, I don't, you know, up front, I don't like you. And the guys in the group, one who'd been in prison a long time and another who was just very thoughtful and articulate and, and as well, turned to him and said, well, it's fine you don't like me, but tell me what it is that you don't like. You know, why is it that you don't like me? And he said, I don't know, I just don't like you. And the other guy said, well, you're just a racist? You know, do you hate black people? He said, no, no, I just don't like you. And they went back and forth, kind of arguing, well, what is it exactly? You don't like my body, my voice, my skin? Nothing. And people are kind of all watching this dialogue when somebody says, I don't like you. And finally, um, he said, I don't like many people. And one of the guys said, well, you know, do people like you? And he said, nah. Do, does anybody love you? I never had anybody love me, you know, like that. And this one guy who'd been in prison for a long time, this big black guy, leapt out of his seat, ran over, and tackled this guy, <laughs> threw him to the ground, and said, Brother, I love you. And he just held him, said, Brother, I love you. And the guy's saying, No, no, get away. And he said, No, I'm not going to let you go, brother. I love you. you know? And then the other guy jumped on him and said, I love you too. And this guy's rolling around, No, no, get away. And I said, We're not going to let you up until you get it. Somebody loves you. It went on for a while. And finally, one little tear rolled out of his eye. One little tear. And he sat up and he looked around. And it was probably the first time in decades for this person that anybody had really cut through that barricade of the heart. Um, I love you. 
So I come back from this retreat, this men's gathering, um, and I want to speak as I have at some other times about beauty. Um, Because sometimes the greatest political act is to turn off CNN and turn on Mozart, you know, or walk in the sunset. Or you know that image of the man who used to go out in the square in Sarajevo, even during the time of the snipers, and play his cello? the lone cellist of Sarajevo, and he would go out there every afternoon at four o'clock and serenade the people in the city. He said, if I can't play my music, what is my life worth? There is a possibility when we enter the awakening of the heart, when we study the Dharma, which means the truth of things, of a kind of retrieval of beauty. And it's really the beauty of those men who are tackling this guy and saying, I love you, brother. It's that beauty of the heart. Etheridge Knight, really a wonderful poet, died a few years ago, won the American Book Award. I think he was in prison when he won it. Spent a lot of his time there, but a great poet. He wrote, if we didn't have music, dancers would be soldiers too, holding guns in their arms instead of each other. And so the beauty that I want to speak of tonight is not the beauty that is the denial of sorrows. It's not the denial of the tears of that woman Gabrielle Mistral wrote about singing to the stars of her grief, but rather the grace that holds and surrounds us which can be discovered when we sit and walk and open in our attention and our heart and our spirit. And in language, this harmony or this music, as Etheridge Knight speaks of, is expressed primarily as poetry. Poetry is the music of language. Language, as it's said, is the most human of all things because it's the thing, we are the, the animal that has language. So harmony, grace, beauty, along with irony and paradox and poignancy and all the richness of emotion are expressed in language through the images of poetry. You can't get the news from poetry, yet men and women die every day for lack of what is found there. Or what uh, Gabriel Mistral says, What the soul does for the body, the poet does for her people. The poet really awakens that spirit in people. So poetry as the music of language speaks to what um, we almost can't say any other way. Here's a little poem for you since we're beginning the warm-up to the 2000 presidential elections. It's called a charm, a magical charm against, against the language of politics. After watching TV say over and over the names of things, the clean nouns, weeping birch, 
bloodstone, tanager, damask rose. Read field guides, atlases, gravestones. At the store, bless each apple by kind, Macintosh, wine sap, delicious, Jonathan, Granny Smith. Enunciate the vegetables, okra, parsnips, calendula. When you have compared the politicians' slippery platforms, chant the spiders, comb-footed, round-headed, orb spider, garden cross, feather-legged, ogre-faced, black widow. Remember that most short verbs are ethical. Hatch, grow, spin, trap, eat. Dig deep, pronounce clearly, pull the words in over your head, and hole up for the duration. (laughs) It's kind of an inoculation against the language of politics, which has all this verbiage and doesn't mean anything. Pablo Neruda has a line where he talks about the man who is frightened by a lily. Yes, that there's a way that even a flower or a word can touch us so deeply. Buddhism is filled with poetry. If you actually look into the ancient texts and sutras, poet Ryokan from Japan writes, if someone asks my abode, I reply, the eastern edge of the Milky Way. The poet Milarepa was the great yogi of Tibet. The 100,000 songs are his 100,000 poems of his life. And the Buddha himself, over and over, spoke in poetic ways. He said, the fragrance of virtue and the integrity of the heart. Oh, let's see, how does he say it? The, the fragrance of rose bay, jasmine, um, can travel only as far as the wind blows. But the fragrance of good deeds and the virtuous heart rises even to the gods. And the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, the morning, it said, after he saw the morning star and awakened to great freedom, he began his first words with a poem. O house builder, thou art seen at last. The ridge pole of attachment is shattered. The rafters of grasping are broken. Nevermore shall I be caught in this house of sorrow. Or Hanshan. Hanshan was the kind of Chinese sage who lived out among the mountains. He wrote, clouds and mountains all tangled up together to the blue sky, a rough road and deep woods without any travelers. Far away the lone moon, a bright glistening white. Nearby a flock of birds sobbing like children. One old man sitting alone, perched in these green mountains. A small shack, letting my hair grow white. Pleased with the years gone by. This life is like water flowing east to the ocean. Just the simple words of being where we are and sensing the grace in that presence or telling the truth. O builder of this house of sorrows, awakened am I, shattered is your ridgepole. 
Poetry can tell the truth in one line. Emily Dickinson writes, Because I did not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. <laughs> or she writes again, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Just one simple line. Huge questions asked. So as we begin to meditate and really pay attention to the body and the breath and the mind and the heart, we begin to, to discover that we contain all things. Like uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who writes, where is he? You remember, almost everyone knows this passage from Thich Nhat Hanh, where he says, if you are a poet, you will see clearly when you look at a piece of paper that there's a cloud floating in this piece of paper and sunshine for the existence of this page and the trees that it came from cannot grow without rain and without sunshine. Humans can't grow without sunshine either. And the logger who cut the tree needed sunshine in order to cut it, and the tree needed sunshine in order to be a tree. And therefore, if you are a poet, you can see sunshine. And if you look with the eyes of those who are awake, you see the cloud and the rain, and everything is here. The wheat that became the bread for the logger's sandwich that day, and the logger's mother and father, everything that exists is held in this sheet of paper. If you can see with the eyes of a poet. So we begin to sit and just let our mind quiet and the heart open. And we discover like the piece of paper that we contain all things. We find even in a short you know, period of meditation, 30 or 40 minutes like we did, we discover what Emily Dickinson called the mob within the heart. You know, there you are sitting, minding your own business. The breath comes in and out a little bit, right? And all of a sudden, you're gone. And you're doing an argument, you know, and you're choreographing an opera, you know, and you're making business deals, you know, and you're pleading with your doctor. Um, and all of that stuff happens. And so when you sit, the energies of life, which are what make us up and make up this world, that have waited for you, the grief, the unfinished business of the heart, the tiredness of the body, the longing and love that you want to express, the creativity that's bubbling deep under there, they all come out. They're all in there. Carl Sandburg put it this way, There is a wolf in me, fangs pointed for tearing gashes, a red tongue for raw meat, I keep the wolf because the wilderness gave it to me and the wilderness will not let it go. There's a fox in me, a silver gray fox. I sniff and guess and pick things out of the wind and air and nose in the dark night and circle and loop around. There's a hog in me, a snout and belly, machinery for eating and grunting and sleeping satisfied in the sun. There's a fish in me. I came from salt blue water gates and scurried with shoals of herring and blue water spouts with porpoises before Noah, there's a baboon in me, clambering, clawed, dog-faced, yapping a gaulut's hunger, hairy under the armpits. There's an eagle in me, and a mockingbird in the bird, and the eagle flies among the rocky mountains of my dreams, 
and fights among the Sierra crags and the mockingbird warbles in the early forenoons when the dew is gone and the Chattanoogas of my hope. Oh, I got an eagle and a mockingbird from the wilderness. I got a zoo. I got a menagerie inside my ribs, under my bony head, under my red valve heart, and I got something else. It is a man heart, a woman child heart. It is a father and mother and lover, came from God knows where, it's going to God knows where, for I am the keeper of the zoo. I say yes and no, I sing, and I am a pal of the world. I came from the wilderness, and the wilderness will not let me go. That's the description of meditation. <laughs> it's how it happens. You sit, and the tortoise is in there, slogging along, right? And then the fox comes out and sniffs, and then the tarantula comes out. Oh, dear. You know. And so the poets, when they're good, try to give in words our heart and our mind a way to return to some deeper truth that we know. Freud said, wherever I've gone, a poet has been there before me. So the question then comes, how do we relate to the zoo, to this humanity that is our life? Meditation is an invitation to presence, to aliveness, to a fullness in the face of all things. It's not to come and make yourself peaceful by deadening your spirit or running away from things, but quite the opposite, to really be here. A poem by Thomas Carlyle. It's good to use the best china, the most genuine goblets, the oldest lace tablecloth. There's a risk, of course, every time we use anything or anyone shares an intimate moment or fragile cup of revelation, but not to touch, not to handle the artifacts of being human is the quiet crash, the deadly catastrophe where nothing is enjoyed or broken, spilled or spoken, stained or mended, where nothing is ever lived, loved, laughed over, wept over, where nothing is ever lost or found. And so meditation in that way is the invitation to actually experience this breath, this body, the grief we carry, the love we carry, the passion that makes us human, the fears that make us human, and find in that a freedom in the midst of it all. It's not an easy thing if one would open the heart, especially in these times, you know, because in some ways we're very comfortable, we're kind of wafted asleep like poppies from the witch, you know, in, in the Wizard of Oz. Oh, all these things that put us to sleep. And yet, at the same time, we see these horrific images that are also with us every day from our own cities, from the racism of our culture, from the warfare in Europe and Africa and Asia and elsewhere. The problem, says Adrian Rich, unstated until now, is how to live in a damaged body in a world where pain is meant to be gagged, uncured, ungrieved over. The problem is to connect without hysteria the pain of anyone's body with the pain of the world's body. To be unafraid to do so. 
If we speak of this spiritual journey and what it demands from us, Rumi uses three images as a poet, and Rumi has a hundred thousand verses in the Mathnawi. He called his teachings the ocean of poetry. And this spiritual journey is described in three particular phases, the camel, the lion, and the child. The camel symbolizes necessary devotion, commitment, repetition, service, what Gandhi called blessed monotony, the willingness to kneel, you know how camels kneel, to sit, to pray, to breathe over and over again, to approach our life again and again and again as what, what one Tibetan Lama called, called the spiritual practices manual labor. Even in the desert, to kneel, to bow, to honor what's there. And some days it feels like that, that our spiritual life is kind of a struggle, whether it's sitting in meditation or dealing with our children or dealing with the traffic on the freeways or dealing with the people at work or all the stupid things that come in our mailbox, you know, which do, they do, you know. And then on top of that, someone we love gets sick gravely sick, or we hear about something that really touches us, and we're just going through it, praying day after day, breathing, taking one step at a time, trying to live in an honorable way. Rilke puts this phase of the journey this way, the kneeling of the camel. What we choose to fight is so tiny, and what fights with us is so great. When we win, it's with the small things, and the triumph makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. I mean the angel who appeared to the wrestlers of the Old Testament when the wrestlers' sinews grew long like metal strings. He felt them under his fingers like chords of deep music. Whoever was beaten by this angel went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand that needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that one. This is how our life grows, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater things. Kind of an amazing poem, isn't it? It doesn't talk about success. You know, Americans like to talk about success, but about facing the enormity of life with dignity and compassion and saying yes each day, you know, to take care of the children even though you didn't get enough sleep, you know, and to care for the things that needing care even though it's difficult. This is this phase of the camel. And Rumi says that in the beginning of a spiritual life, we have to find or reawaken this capacity of the camel, to find this in ourselves. See how he puts it. You've lost your camel, my friend, and everyone's giving you advice. You don't know where your camel is that can take you across this great desert, but you do know these casual directions are wrong. Even someone who hasn't lost a camel, who's never even owned a camel, gets in on the excitement. Yes, I've lost my camel too, a big reward for whoever finds it. He says this in order to be part owner of your camel when you find it. He has indeed lost a camel, but he doesn't know it. 
wanting and imitating someone else's wanting has blinded him as he follows along in the search, calling out what others do. But then, all of a sudden, he sees his own camel browsing there, the one he didn't even know he lost. He becomes a seeker, he turns aside, goes by himself. The sincere one asks, why have you left my search? Up to now, I was a fake. I was flattering you. I wanted to be part of your glory. Before, I was stealing camel descriptions from you. I knew something was missing. I didn't even know what it was. I knew something was missing. I didn't even know what it was. Now, when my spirit sees the camel, everything is filled Now I know the camel is real. I have it in front of me. Like a thief, I crept and entered a house, and it was my own home. So what Rumi talks about when he speaks of the camel is finding that capacity in our being that can bow, that can honor, that can kneel, that can devote ourselves to something that we love and that's really of our heart's deepest value and do it over and over and over again, that can serve. And this part of practice is humbling, you know, and it brings us a kind of humility, like that man I talked about, the landlord fellow, who couldn't get it. I don't like you. Until people had to tackle him and kind of throw him to the earth and say, I love you, brother. When we really enter meditation and spiritual life in an honorable way, as we begin to sit and feel our breath and open to our body and our emotions, our minds and our thoughts, we discover very often wounds, bodily wounds of pains that we've carried in our body, and wounds to the soul. And so this work of the camel is really the work of healing, the healing of our hearts and our bodies, and the healing that takes place in our relationship to the world so that even in pain we can find a way to hold it with compassion. Emily Dickinson again writes, There is a pain so utter it swallows substance up and covers it as if in a swoon or a trance so that we can walk across it. I think that's what that young man was talking about and weeping when he said, I've been born into a white fog. And this kind of healing is done a moment at a time, a day at a time. The willingness to touch our own body, our sorrows, our pains, the people around us, around us with a spirit of kindness or compassion. One of the leaders of this men's retreat was a Sufi from Iraq named Muhammad Ahmed. And he'd been um, thrown in prison in Iraq for speaking out against the regime, oh, probably 15 or 18 years ago before the war. And he was tortured in prison for a lot of years, and his family, much of his family was killed. I think he was a writer. And then he escaped into Kurdistan and worked with the Kurd revolution for a while and into Iran, and he was thrown in prison again and tortured. Finally, he was able to escape to the West. 
the most beautiful man, he said, I found my voice in prison. After he was tortured, he began to sing. And he was like, what do you call them, a muezzin in the Muslim tradition, the man who climbs the minaret at the mosque in the morning and sings to Allah across the whole of the city. He would open his mouth and sing, and you would hear him through the redwoods, through the forest, a half a mile away singing. And he was this tiny little, kind of late 50-year-old man from Iraq, and he would meet you, and as he met you, he would bow, and he would bow so far down, it was like his head was almost touching the ground. And then he would look at you, and he would kiss you on one cheek, and then he'd hug you, and he'd kiss you on the other cheek, and then he would grab your hand and turn it, and kiss this hand, and grab that hand, and kiss this hand. And then he would look in your eyes, and he said, Oh, Allah has given me such a day that I can look in these eyes. What a gift Allah has given me to bring you to this moment. And then he'd turn to the next person, and he would kiss them, and bow to them, and kiss both sides of their face. He was a lover. And then he would sing the grace of Allah. And then he stood up, because these young men from the city, inner cities especially, were talking about how hard it was. And he said, I'll tell you what happened to me. And he just talked about what it was like to be in prison and be tortured and feel like there was no way out at all. How much pain and how much grief and how dead it seemed. He said, And then I began to hear Allah singing. And I caught these words. And then in a moment, the voice came out of him. And he just began to sing what he had heard in the prison. And these young guys who were looking at him began to weep. Because they knew that somebody was speaking to the level of grief and to the healing work of the heart um, that could change even their experience that could awaken them. Mary Oliver writes, you do not have to be good. It's a great line. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair yours and I will tell you mine. As Muhammad did to them. Or as St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and touch, blessings of the earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way to the spiritual curl of her tail, the long, perfect loveliness of sow. St. Francis offering his blessings. And this is the work of the camel. And we all need to find it in ourselves, the way to bow like Muhammad Ahmed did to each person, to our own loves and longing and wounds. The ability to stay with it day after day. And then from this devotion and perseverance and presence, there comes the stage of the lion, which is the roar of authority. I am here in the midst of it all. The Buddha called his teaching the lion's roar, the invitation for all things to awaken with him. Did you ever hear a lion roar? Even in a zoo, it's kind of an amazing thing. I remember a couple of years ago being in the Singapore Zoo. Singapore has this quite phenomenal zoo, and one of the best zoos in the world. And all these animals, the orangutans and this, this 
kind of Siberian fox that was as um, uh, enormous, as big as a, you know, a Doberman or something, this huge fox and all these strange animals. And at one point in the afternoon, all of a sudden, the lions began to bellow and there was one big lion. And they don't roar with their throat when you watch them. They actually roar with their entire body. It's like a bellows and it roars. And as soon as the lion began to roar, everything else in the zoo, quiet. You know, the monkeys, everybody, it's like, okay, somebody's speaking, we better quiet down. And the sound from the lion, no matter how long it lives in the zoo, is, I do not belong in this zoo. I belong in the great jungles in the forest. And you could hear it in this lion. The Buddha called his teachings the lion's roar in that same way. It's the roar of knowing what is true and speaking the truth, not of the duty of the camel, that first stage, but rather resting in the center of the earth, bestowing blessings, honoring things from the place where you have found this seat in the midst of all things. The Buddha speaking in poetry again. I consider the position of kings and rulers as like dust motes in a sunbeam and the treasures of gold and gems as but broken tiles. I look upon the finest silken robes as tattered rags and see the myriad worlds of the universe as small seeds and the great Indian Ocean as but drops of mud that soil one's feet. I perceive the teachings of this world to be the illusions of magicians and look upon the judgment of right and wrong as the serpentine dance of a dragon and the rise and fall of beliefs as but traces left by the four seasons. And I sit as the awakened one here in the midst of the rise and fall of beliefs and empires and joys and sorrows and say it is possible to awaken in the midst of them all. It's the invitation of the Buddha to find that one who knows, that one who is awake in the midst of yourself, that royalty, that true nature that you have and you know is in there, even though it gets covered over. A poem that I like in this regard is called A Story That Could Be True from William Stafford. And the reason that I like it is that it in part speaks to children. You know, a lot of children have daydreams and fantasies about where they really came from. And many of them, I think my daughter included at certain phases, were waiting for that knock on the door, which would come one day, and they'd open the door, and there would be someone very elegantly dressed in some incredible outfit saying, you know, these are not your real parents. And you were actually born to royalty and we're going to take you back to that castle or palace or wherever it is that you belong. A Story That Could Be True by William Stafford is a wonderful poet. If you were exchanged in the cradle and your real mother died without ever telling the story, then no one knows your name. And somewhere in the world your father is lost and needs you but you are far away. He can never find how true you are, how ready your heart. And when the great wind comes and the robberies of the rain, you stand in the corner shivering. The people who go by, you wonder at their calm. They miss the whisper that runs any day in your mind. 
Who are you really, wanderer? And the answer you have to give, no matter how dark and cold the world around you is, maybe I'm a king, maybe I'm a queen. The roar of the lion is sitting or resting in that place that knows that you belong here in this human form on this earth. It was like those young men talking to the Pakistani man. You can't do it, man. We need you here so that my friends in high school and college know that there's somebody else who's faced what you're facing and what we're facing and still stays alive. We need you to find that dignity in oneself. One more poem, tonight's poetry, as you can, you know, goes on and on. This is the more feminine side of it. This is from Nikki Giovanni, to speak of the, you know, the awakening of the lion's roar in a woman. I was born in the Congo. I walked to the Fertile Crescent and built the Sphinx. I designed a pyramid so tough that a star that glows only 100 years Every 100 years falls into the center, giving divine, perfect light. I am bad. (laughs) I sat on the throne drinking nectar with Allah. I got hot and sent an ice age to Europe to control my thirst. My oldest daughter is Nefertiti. The tears from my birth pains created the Nile. I am a beautiful woman. I gazed on the forest and burned out the Sahara Desert. With a packet of goat's meat and a change of clothes, I crossed it in two hours. I'm a gazelle so swift, you can't catch me. For a birthday present when he was three, I gave my son Hannibal an elephant. He gave me Rome for Mother's Day. My strength flows on. My son Noah built an ark. I stood proudly at the helm as we sailed on a soft summer day. I turned myself into myself and was Jesus Men intone my loving name, all praises. I am the one who would save. I sowed diamonds in my backyard. My bowels deliver uranium. The filings from my fingernails are semi-precious jewels. On a trip north, I caught a cold and blew my nose, giving oil to the Arab world. I am so hip, even my errors are correct. I sailed west to reach east and had to round off the earth as I went. The hair from my head thinned and gold was laid across three continents. I am so perfect, so divine, so ethereal, so surreal, I cannot be comprehended except by my permission. I mean, I can fly like a bird in the endless sky. That's the lion's roar. So there are these three phases. The camel, the devotion, the healing, the willingness to bow, to kiss, to love and open with compassion. The discovery of the lion's roar of beauty in oneself that's unshakable. And finally, the third stage, the child, the child of the spirit. This is a poem from um, Lloyd Reynolds, who was a great master of calligraphy. He wrote in his beautiful hand, a bug crawls across the paper, leave him be. We need all the readers we can get. (laughs) A kind of innocence that uh, Suzuki Roshi called the goal of practice, to keep one's beginner's mind. Even after the strength of the lion and the, the devotion of the camel, it's really the wonder or the new spirit 
As Angelus Silesis wrote, if in your heart you make a manger for his birth, then God will once again become a child on earth. And this life is so mysterious and amazing. You know, when the Voyager spaceship was sent out past Uranus and Neptune and Pluto out to the stars, they put it in a number of things. Pictures of men and women and thousands of animals. They also put in it words in 55 languages. Um, And they put in it music. If you touch it, if someone were to find it and touch it, it would start to play music. They put Bach and Louis Armstrong and Balinese gamelan, you know, and African drumming in it. I'm just thinking that it's out there on the way to the stars for somebody who will touch it if there is somebody out there and hear the amazing things of this particular planet. The line from Mary Oliver, um, uh, she describes herself as a bride married to amazement. And so this third stage is really the reclaiming of beauty by seeing the miracle of just being alive in this life. Walt Whitman, who wrote, I believe a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars, and the running blackberry would adorn the parlors of heaven, and the mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. Just the existence of a mouse, I mean, where does that come from? Same place we came from. Where did we come from? And all these balls of fire hanging in great dark space, you know, and we take it for granted. I mean, it is really amazing. Or you lie out on a dark night under the stars on the earth, which, you know, people like to do as kids, I used to do. But there's a little twist that makes it more interesting. You lie out there and you look into the dark sky and then you pretend, which is also true, that you're on the very bottom of the earth and you're looking down into the stars and that gravity kind of like a magnet holds you there. It's vast stars. All these amazing things. Sleep. Don't you think sleep is weird? I mean, think about it. That we live in these, you know, mammalian bodies. Most creatures, animals do. And then at a certain point in the day, we, we lie down or we fall over, right? And we go unconscious. And then we have this whole other world of dreams that happens. And after six or eight hours, we're back up again. I mean, that is the weirdest thing, you know, to have sleep. It's really bizarre. Or the, or the human eye, these round balls, right, that, you know, that see things, right, through this kind of gelatinous stuff there. Completely amazing. When we were in Bali on sabbatical a few years ago, we discovered that they had um, fireflies in Bali. And because my daughter had grown up in California, unlike me, where I grew up on the East Coast, there were a lot of fireflies, but she'd never seen one. So one night, one of the first few nights we were there, she went to sleep in her mosquito net in this Balinese house, and I saw some fireflies, and I went and I captured a few of them, a little cup, you know, a bunch of them, and I brought them in, and I let them go inside her mosquito net, and then I woke her up, and her eyes opened, and she said, Daddy, what is that? I said, those are fireflies. 
And they flew around her net for a while, and then I let him let them go back out again. But imagine, you know, the likelihood, the improbability of beautiful little insects with blinking lights. Come on, you know. The child of the spirit. In my bowl, says Rio Khan, lilacs, dandelions, and the Buddhas of all three worlds. What fools we were not to have seen the beauty that's there all around us in the eyes of every person we meet. I like to tell the story of the Dalai Lama who was recently in the U.S., as some of you know. He did this whole big thing in Central Park for 50,000 or more people and whatever. Um, He'd done a great um, teachings of the Kala Chakra Tantra, which is the highest tantric teachings that the Dalai Lama gives of the wheel of time in Madison Square Garden some years ago. First time he gave the Kala Chakra Tantra in, in America or in the West. And the hall was filled, Madison Square Garden, with some thousands of people and they set up a big brocade throne for him and before he came in there were all those lamas doing the chanting and clashing the cymbals and playing those huge Tibetan kind of alpen horns and chanting all the kinds of chants and then finally he walked in and climbed up on the throne and to make it comfortable for him the people who had organized it um, had put at the top a couple of mattresses and then they'd covered it with oriental carpet and brocade and so forth and he sat down on it and it bounced and he smiled and then he bounced again and bounced a little bit more and he smiled more and then before giving the highest tantric teachings on the whole creation of mind in the universe and the wheel of time the Dalai Lama sat there like a kid and just bounced up and down in the middle of 5,000 people in Madison Square Garden so this third image from Rumi to awaken the child of the spirit is to discover a great space of playfulness of heart. Sometimes I go about pitying myself, say the Ojibwe, and all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. So to find, even in the pity and the struggles and the place of the camel of needing to tend to things over and over and needing to heal and the place of the lion's roar, to allow this space of wonder and mystery to become present. As Thomas Merton says again, then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts where neither sin nor knowledge could reach the core of their reality, the person that each one is in the eyes of the divine. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way, there would be no more need for war or hatred or cruelty or greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. And if one gives oneself in an honorable way to meditation, to a spiritual practice, there will arise sad poems of loss and betrayal and grief and happy poems of beauty and delight and poems of forgetfulness and jealousy and poems of remembering and of the lion's roar. 
And in the end, in any moment, in some moment, one begins to realize that all that you've seen is not who you really are. That who you really are is a space of openness and freedom bigger than all those things. As Machado, no, this is Juan Ramon Jimenez writes, I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit and at other times I forget. The one who remains silent when I talk. The one who forgives sweet when I hate. The one who takes a walk when I am indoors. The one who will remain standing when I die. And you touch in this simple presence of awareness and compassion, that truth of your own nature, that freedom and compassion and openness is possible in any moment, in the midst of anything, even in prison in Iraq being tortured, as Muhammad Ahmed said, even there the voice of Allah can move and sing through us. I mean, what do we want to make of this life? It is so amazing. Surely it has grief and suffering, we know, but also it has so much beauty. And to live a spiritual life is that willingness to touch the beauty in ourselves and then carry that beauty as a blessing into the world to touch others. And so I read the last poem for the evening. And we'll sit for a moment and chant and go out into the night. This is from Lynn Park, and she wrote this poem. She, she's a woman who had um, something called brittle bone disease, which meant that as she was growing up, every time she fell, or many of the times, she would break a bone. She said to learn to walk, she broke five or six or seven different bones, and by the time she was 12, she'd broken most of the bones in her body. Here's her poem. Take the time to pray. It is a sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden so the doorway can swing open easily. You can always go there. Consider yourself blessed. These stones that break your bones will build the altar of your love. Your home is in the garden. Carry its odor hidden in you into the city. Suddenly your enemies will buy seed packets and fall to their knees to plant flowers in the dirt by the side of the road. They'll call you friend and honor your passing among them. And when asked, who was that? They'll say, oh, that one has been beloved by us since before time began. And this from people who would have trampled over you to maintain their advantage. Give everything away except your garden, your worry, your fear, your small-mindedness. Your garden can never be taken from you. Let's sit for a minute.
and feel as you sit what beauty wants to move through you this day, this week. The beauty of devotion like the camel and healing or the beauty of your lion's roar or the beauty of innocence, the heart of a the child of the spirit. Before we go, just a couple of brief things to say. Um, I'll be here again next week down in the community meditation hall. There are two people who've sat very often on Monday nights over the years who are both in need of prayers or metta. One is Carolyn Williamson, who's in the hospital in San Francisco and quite ill. And another is Anita Olds in San Geronimo Valley. Um, Also, I was asked to announce that Um, On Wednesdays at 7.30 at the Social Justice Center near Red Hill Shopping Center, 1000 Sir Francis Drake Boulevard, is um, uh, meetings for those who are supporting KPFA and its voice of truth in our community. What I'd like before we go out is that we chant this word namo, which means to bow to, offer one's respect or one's love, nine times. And do it as a prayer for Carolyn and Anita and for anyone else or anything in the world that wants your compassion and your own hearts bowing. Namo Namo harmony na stillness at times with blessings and may you bring the beauty of your heart and spirit to all that you touch. Thank you. Good night.
shoot each other. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. My pleasure. I'll be with you. Yes. Oh, for anyone who's leaving who can, please fold up the folding chairs and take them by the stairs and put some of these cushions on the floor away in stacks and stack up the red chairs. I forgot to mention that. If you could help with that, that would be a blessing. Thank you so much. So this was a few years ago. I think it's really amazing. Did the execution happen? Probably stunned by that, huh? Yeah. Oh, it's great. I didn't watch it on the news, I just read it in the newspaper. Wow, this was, that was a creative moment. That is a great story. Yeah. Thank you for that. Have you been baking any bread lately? Um, at home I did. Uh huh. You know, we just got back, uh, we've been back for money. Six months in El Salvador. You were in El Salvador for six months. How was that? It was fixed. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, last year the, the statistic was, was 
First of all, I think it's a great idea. Yeah, I think it's great. Just to have a spiritual sustenance of the group like that would be beautiful. I don't know very many lawyers in the city. We sort of have to, but not well enough to remember the names of the You know, in some way, what would be nice would be to get a little notice in the meeting and try and find a little bit and just say, you know, those people are understanding. You could be on the bottom line. particular place in society, how do we do it? How do we do our corporate law with some sense of spirit and integrity? I think it's beautiful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.